0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition on CPAC. Day 23 of the federal election campaign just two and a half weeks until voting day, October 21st. Coming up, after days of being pushed, the Conservative leader finally reveals his personal position on abortion on a day when it's uh, revealed in a Globe and Mail story that Andrew Scheer holds dual Canada-U.S. citizenship but is in the process of renouncing it. Here's how the Conservative leader addressed the dual citizenship issue at a rally tonight in Nova Scotia. Why did you wait until no.
1: August in, in, to, to, to uh, start the process of renouncing your American citizenship until the, right on the eve of the election? It looks very opportunistic, but you only did it because an election was no,
2: coming No, I, I disagree. I, well, I, I made the decision after I became leader of the party to, to do this, and I was focused on other things. Was, uh, rebuilding the party, getting ready for the election, working on the platform it was always my intention to do it before the election.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Well, so, in English, just to the prior question, no one's ever asked me before about it. Uh, like millions of Canadians, I have a, a, one of my parents was born in another country. Uh, and uh, I met with representatives from the embassy uh, in August, announced that I was renouncing my citizenship, and I've submitted the, the paperwork to start that process. You know,
3: your leader
4: at the time just, was very you
2: hit this from oh, it's, I, I, was, I was never asked about it from Canadians. I've actually been very honest about it. My my father's always been very open uh, about where he's come from, and uh, that's uh, and I, I, I haven't uh, I, I haven't been asked a question. So you've been honest being, asked about
5: it. You've never told anybody. About. Well,
2: about. I've never been asked about. It. I've never but I've I, never I, hit I, it.
1: That's concealing but my but omission. You Look, please just uh, 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 I would uh, dis
2: I would disagree. Did you
1: tell your party as your party was attacking talking to
2: Tell your party that
4: you
2: As as I said, uh, I, uh, like millions of Canadians, have one parent who happened to be born in another country, born in Canada, lived here my entire life, raising my children here in Canada, and uh, made the decision to renounce my U.S. citizenship and start the process.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Look, I've always made it known about how what I feel about uh, about this issue and people who who hold dual citizens with uh, with my colleagues.
1: Mr. Chair, if you become Prime Minister, you will see documents related to national security that will be labeled for Canadian eyes only. If you're a dual citizenship, do you think you're going to be able to look at those documents? And if not, is that going to affect your ability well, to function as
2: a Prime Minister? Look, as I said, I've, I've started the process to, uh, I met with officials in August who uh, to, said I was renouncing my U.S. citizenship and uh, submitted the forms and waiting for finalization.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, that was Andrew Scheer addressing the media reports tonight that he holds dual Canada-U.S. citizenship, but is in the process of renouncing it. Now, we'll discuss all of that in a moment. But first, our Day 23 campaign primer. The Liberal leader began Day 23 of the campaign in Montreal, speaking with supporters and returning to key themes from the debate last night on the environment, affordability, and slamming his chief rival in the national polls, Andrew Scheer.
5: But we know there is so much at stake for families, for seniors. Andrew Scheer is giving a universal tax cut that gives more advantages to someone making $400,000 a year than someone making $40,000 a year. That's not right, but it's what the Conservatives always do. They lower taxes for the wealthiest 1% and cut services for everybody else. The party leaders including Trudeau, have doubled down on the issue of abortion and Andrew Scheer's continued reluctance to divulge his personal opinion on a woman's right to choose. One of the issues that, uh, that- we're seeing in this com- in this in this election is who are you fighting for and who will you defend? I've been absolutely unequivocal that I will always defend a woman's rights to choose. I will always defend LGBT communities. I will always defend minorities. I will always defend uh, linguistic minorities across this country. This is something that Canadians know of a Liberal government and of me as a leader. Uh, what is Unclear because Mr. Scheer won't answer a direct question on whether or not he believes that women should have the right to choose. He will not answer that question about his personal beliefs. And if we don't know who he's willing to fight for, who he's willing to defend, how can Canadians make an informed decision about whether or not he will fight for them and defend their rights? But after days of questioning, including at last night's French-language
0: leaders' debate on Quebec Network TVA...
5: conservative. Ne <laughs>
0: The Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, finally brought clarity to his personal position on abortion, hoping to put the matter to rest.
2: Well, I've always answered this question uh, openly and honestly uh, from the first time I ran for office in 2004 to when I ran for the leadership of the party in 2016 to after I won the leadership of the, of the party. My personal position uh, has always been uh, open and consistent. I am personally pro-life, uh, but I've also made the commitment that as leader of this party, it is my responsibility to ensure uh, that we do not reopen this debate, that we focus on issues that unite our party and unite Canadians. And that's exactly what I'll do. And that's why I will vote against uh, measures that attempt to
0: reopen this debate. Scheer campaigned in New Brunswick alongside New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs. He announced a Conservative government would cut from 200 to 150 the number of hours required for the estimated 135,000 volunteer firefighters and rescuers to qualify for a federal tax credit.
2: It was a Conservative government that brought in the existing tax credits for these community heroes. And a new Conservative government will make it easier to qualify so more volunteers can get ahead. We all know money isn't why they do what they do. But this change will help more get more money in their pockets. It will help to pay for gear and training. Most of all, it's a recognition of what they do for us and a way for us to say
0: thanks.
6: I don't know anything about this area. Have we? We, had, we, had, we had a date here at Nunu. in fact.
0: NDP leader Jugmeet Singh returned to the same themes he hammered in the debate last night at a stop in Toronto, he lamented what he described as the failed records of federal and provincial liberals and conservatives in the province of Ontario and urged voters to choose change. He said Andrew Scheer's admission that he is pro-life is too little, too late.
6: The fact that he said it today, but he didn't say it during a debate when asked the question directly certainly shows a lack of courage.
0: And Singh addressed for the first time the incident yesterday in Montreal where an elderly man approached him and urged him to cut off his turban to look like a Canadian.
6: I think the guy was trying to be friendly, um, but you know that's that's not that's a thing with when people say mean things that they don't always intend for it to be mean, but it's hurtful, and a lot of Canadians face that all the time. Casual comments that demean people because of their gender, their sexuality, the color of their skin, their spiritual beliefs. That happens all too often, and I want to send a clear message to Canadians. Who've been told to change who they are just to fit in or to get ahead. I want people to be who they are, to believe in yourself, to love yourself and to celebrate who you are because everyone should belong and I want to build a world where everyone belongs.
5: We're the you. biggest supporters of Liberals. Support. I appreciate that very much. You're going to win. gonna win. You're you. gonna
0: Shana, win. Tova, eh? Shana tova. Thank you. And that's the kind of day it's been, day 23 of the campaign. Well, the leaders were also clashing today over climate change and carbon emitted on the campaign trail by the party planes. We learned last night that the Liberals are using two planes on their campaign, one for the leader and his staff and media, another for cargo and personnel setting up ahead of time at the various events. So here's what the Liberal and Conservative leaders were saying about that today, and we'll hear Jagmeet
5: Singh too. As I said, in 2015, uh, we also had two planes. Uh, We also bought carbon offsets to ensure that we could get out to meet more Canadians than any other campaign right across the country and at the same time uh, ensure that we're protecting the environment. But what we're seeing here from the Conservatives is a classic and desperate attempt to distract from the fact that they have zero approach on climate change. Don't even think it's important. It's a well-established far-right tactic to try and discredit environmentalists uh, and people who actually want to fight the environment by distracting. Uh, this is something that simply won't work because Quebecers and all Canadians know we need a government that will fight climate change uh, and that is exactly what we've done and what we will do.
2: Well our plane is actually uh, using less fuel than uh, the, the, the plane that's carrying Justin Trudeau and his staff and the media around so right there we're emitting fewer emissions and we're going we've we've decided to get by with just the one plane. Uh, we've uh, taken that decision. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, we've we found that we've got more than enough space. We can we can make do with just the one. And I don't buy Mr. Trudeau's excuse that somehow uh, purchasing some credits uh, excuses him, gives him the privilege to uh, burn more fuel at uh, tens of thousands of gallons per hour or per flight.
6: Well, we're trying to be very um, very careful with that. It's very important to me not to. To create more of a carbon footprint than we can and so we've made decisions like staying in in one place for longer Uh, we didn't fly back to montreal when we could have to be at the climate crisis thinking that flying across canada to join a climate rally in montreal uh, wouldn't be the best way to show that we support fighting against the climate crisis so we've been making very prudent decisions around the way we move around the country and we are absolutely committing to uh, buying carbon offsets that's a part of our our commitment
0: And we have a developing story we want to deal with uh, as well this evening. That is uh, reports in the Globe and Mail that Andrew Scheer is a dual citizen, Canadian and U.S. And how significant is that? He's in the process of renouncing it. But uh, we want to raise that now with our uh, panel of uh, party commentators. Let's discuss all of that with... From Toronto, Richard Mahoney is a Liberal commentator, and Samara Takest is a Conservative commentator. And with me in our studio, Robin McLaughlin is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Be here. Uh, be here. Uh, Samara, let me start with you. Uh, we have this now about uh, the Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, holding dual citizenship. He's in the process of uh, renouncing it. And uh, how big of a deal is this?
7: Look, um, Andrew Scheer grew up in my city of Ottawa, um, in in my neighborhood, let's say, in the south end. And he's as Ottawaan, as Canadian, as all of us. There are, you know, thousands of Canadians who are dual citizens. Um, We, some of them are, you know, American and Canadian and so on. I don't think it's a big deal. Um, He's never renewed... The passport that his father took out for him when he was a child, and uh, he's in the process of renouncing uh, his uh, his American citizenship. So Andrew Scheer is as Canadian as we are. He's a Canadian, a Canadian, and a Canadian. That's R- all that matters. R- to Richard
0: Manny conservatives in the past have been uh, pretty critical of Stéphane Dion over his dual uh, French Canadian citizenship. Tom Mulcair, the same thing. I- is this a big deal or uh, or not?
8: Yeah, I was just going to, Peter, you're so right. I was just going to say two things. I don't think it's a big deal. Um, and I, I uh, agree with Samara. You know, Andrew Shear grew up in Ottawa, um, went to Immaculata High School, uh, all sorts of things, and then moved to Saskatchewan. Uh, as long as he didn't misrepresent the fact, as long as he didn't claim uh, otherwise at some point, um, I think that what we should do is apply a different test to Mr. Shear. And the one that conservatives applied to, as you said, uh, Stéphane Dion and his then dual citizenship, French and uh, Canadian. Uh, you know, there was a, a big uh, "foo for all" from the conservatives about, I believe, it was the former Governor General's.
0: Yeah, Michel Jean, uh, and I think uh, Mr. Shear was was uh, critical of her when when she held both. Yeah.
8: So, but but uh, even though it's an election campaign, I guess I would say, uh, at least speaking for myself personally. Uh, you know when those things happened, I was there saying, you know how ridiculous that was. Um, as long as Mr. Shear didn't misrepresent himself, pretend to be something he is not, okay. uh, then I and, and, and as you know, as long as he. And he certainly has, uh, has never shown any intent of becoming a, uh, a U.S. resident, notwithstanding he's probably a big fan of Mr. Trump. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think we should make a big okay. deal. Okay, R- Robin, what are your thoughts on this? Uh,
1: no difference of opinion. Uh, this isn't a big deal. It shouldn't be a d- big deal. It shouldn't have been a big deal for Stefan Dion. It shouldn't have been a big deal for Tom Mulcair. My hope is that maybe now Conservatives can see that it shouldn't be a big deal, and we can all move past this the next time
0: it comes up. All right, let, let's, stay with, uh, with, with, let's stay with Mr. Scheer and then Samara. T- today, Andrew Scheer finally after uh, facing questions for weeks here, finally gave his personal opinion on where he is on the issue of abortion, saying that, look, his personal view is he's pro-life, but that won't affect the way he governs, and he's not reopening uh, the abortion debate. I guess the question for a lot of people is, why has it taken him till now to answer this question? He didn't even do it last night in the debate when he had a chance to say then and there that this is my personal view, I'm pro-life, but he decided to do it today, and so why so long?
7: Look, you say finally, but um, Andrew Shear's position on abortion has been clear and he's been honest about it for for, for a decade. Um, everyone knows that Andrew Shear is pro-life. That being said, everyone also knows that the Conservative Party is committed to not reopening the abortion debate. Um, and he reiterated that yesterday. He wanted to focus on the real issues that Canadians are are interested in hearing from him on during the debate and that's he you know, that's what he, he tried to answer the question and move on. But you know, Justin Trudeau cannot run on his own record, so he continuously um, brought the issue up again and again. I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy that he said it again, but I didn't learn anything new. Um, uh, well, from I guess Satan he, when, this
0: when you say he's always been clear, I guess he, he, he's. I think everybody assumed he's pro-life, but he finally decided today that I'm going to use the words pro-life. And I guess, Richard, does that mean uh, we move on from this uh, as well with Andrew Scheer, that Does that settle it? Uh, well, yes and no. I guess there's two
8: issues here. One, um, in the hyper-political age we live in, it seems that Mr. Shear and a lot of Conservatives have trouble admitting some things that, you know, you should just admit. Uh, this is really like the, the, the reverse of the issue that we were just talking about, dual citizenship. You know, Mr. Scheer probably shouldn't have claimed to be an insurance broker if he wasn't a licensed insurance broker. Mr. Scheer, I knew, I I agree with Samara, I I knew Mr. Scheer was pro-life. Mr. Scheer campaigned for the leadership of the Conservative Party on the grounds that he's pro-life. He promised to pro-life groups in that campaign that he would have allow a free vote. The issue over, I think, the confusion on Mr. Scheer and the reason why he probably didn't come clean in the debate last night when he was pressed by the bloc leader uh, Mr. Singh, Mr. Trudeau, and others uh, was because he doesn't w- want to give any fuel to the notion that he would allow a free vote on it. Now, admittedly, he said that he, that, that that you know the, the Conservatives won't bring it forward, but he has played a uh, a little game here, which is to sort of nudge and a wink. Don't uh, you know? Don't worry. We'll say we won't reopen the thing, a la Mr. Harper's commitment. But when he was campaigning for the leadership, of the Conservatives that was only a year and a bit ago, he had a very different message. So. I think it's right for Canadians to sort of wonder what the real deal is here. Okay, does I this, certainly do, uh,
0: Robin. Does that change anything today? That so, Andrew Shears now said, "Okay, I'm I'm pro-life. Uh, I'm not reopening the abortion debate. Should that settle the matter?" Well, there's a reason for the timing of
1: this. I mean, Andrew Scheer got clobbered in the opening round of that uh, French-language debate on TVA uh, last night, and he was getting clobbered for it because he did not have a clear answer. And one would think we're, what, 20 odd number days? 23. 23 days into this campaign, uh, and it's only now that the Conservatives have decided how they're gonna answer this question that they've known since Andrew Scheer became leader would be one of the most fiercest questions he would have to face, along with his position on same-sex marriage, something that took seven days in early September for them to answer to again with an unclear question. I also take issue with the term pro-life. That term sounds positive and is being abused in the United States of America and many states to take away and roll back women's right to choose uh, their health and choose rights over their own bodies. So no, he's anti-choice. He's against a fundamental part of our uh, our legal history in Canada that preserves the right for women to choose uh, decisions about their health uh, that should be made between them and their doctors. So, uh, you know, he should have first of all, being forthright with this uh, earlier on, and they wouldn't have had the awkward display they had last night on television in the the first uh, debate with the Prime Minister. Samar,
0: let me get you to respond to that. I mean, if if part of this issue here was to shore up support for Conservatives in Quebec, where this this issue is an issue, uh, do you think he's done it here? How does he reassure uh, voters in Quebec and in other parts of the country that, uh, yeah, my personal opinion is clearly separate from what I'm going to do if I win government?
7: Well, that's exactly what he did last night, and that's what he did this morning. Um, Andrew Scheer has been very clear. The Conservative Party has been very clear. They won't reopen the debate. He reiterated that multiple times uh, yesterday evening during the debate. And I think Quebecers and those who, everyone who was watching last night, can be reassured based on the comments that he made that the debate will not be reopened. Yeah, can, I mean, can, can, he, can he
0: say? Can he say in the Conservative Party? Can he? Can he say? Can he send a message now saying it? And I won't tolerate any motions uh, or private members' legislation coming from backbench MPs. That's how much I'm going to shut it down. It will not happen.
7: It's part of the Conservative Party's declaration. As leader of the Conservative Party, it is his job to ensure that doesn't happen. Um, Richard alluded to Stephen Harper's record. Well, Stephen Harper said he wouldn't reopen the debate, and he didn't. And that's exactly what Andrew Scheer will do.
0: Okay, Richard, let me move on to another topic here. Carbon campaign planes, let's talk about that. Uh, I think I think we all know Richard Mann, either. We know him around here. And Richard spends a lot of time on airplanes. Like, a lot of time. <laughs> I don't think you ever take two planes, do you, Richard? You just have the one plane. I no, don't think you need two. So what's what's the argument that you need two campaign planes if you're trying to be the climate champion? Well,
8: for, first of all, uh, the what Mr. Trudeau and his campaign have made clear that the other... Uh, plane is used uh, for both the advance crew, which goes out ahead of the campaign and media crew, and for all the different props and setups and things that go into some of these very, very large events that he had. So they, they did this in 2015. They're doing it again in 2019. It's no big deal. Number one, number two, the whole idea of our, uh, of the world's effort and Canada's effort to do something about climate change uh, is that we need to either put a, a, a price on the pollution we make or we have different systems and credits and things like that to offset the pollution we make. This is, something, this is a movement that's been going on in the world for, for many, many years and through a very credible third-party source, the Liberal campaign both this time and last time has offset a, a, any emissions that those planes make uh, in the campaign and otherwise through an accredited third-party okay. source which is actually reducing emissions, no, a company uh, called Less Emissions. Okay, um, so hey,
0: that's hey, the hey, argument. I,
1: agree. Yeah, I can on. tell Richard's awkward having to answer this and I would be too if I had been stumbled upon this for a party I was representing. That's important to note this, yes they did in 2015 uh, and that's the only other time anybody's ever done this. Uh, there's never been a time when... Well, you don't know le- that. Le- well. Bob Fife uh, looked into this, and I understand that he said that there's no time that this has been done before. So if you can come on and show me another time when somebody needed another plane to carry their luggage, uh, then I'd certainly be interested to look at that. But you, these planes are very large. They have large cargo uh, storage areas. And every other leader is able to uh, to take all the equipment they need. Often advanced teams take economy flights or re- uh, travel commercial. But what if uh, they don't? What th-
0: if they do have more stuff and they think they need a second plane? But you're, what you're saying is that's... Then, Most of this Then equipment, scale back in the anybody name who's, of... The, you know, um,
1: environment. Well no, first of all foremost, it's how is it possibly necessary? Everybody that's on advanced knowledge well, you Mr. can True source, the, the you can can that source that AV Mr. equipment True. on every local place you can. Okay. That's actually good for the local economies. Uh, and your your team can travel by other means. So it does look quite hypocritical, and the problem is that it, it's a pattern that fits the narrative, that Justin Trudeau says one okay. thing, but when it comes down to it, he doesn't walk. Richard, walk. I'll
0: come back to it. but Samara, your your leader, I, ra- your leader I, raised I, this, and your leader raised this, and the, Mr. Trudeau then pointed out, yeah, but you're not buying carbon offsets. The conservatives right. aren't buying carbon. Yeah, Carbon carbon offsets offsets, for your plane.
7: That's right. And carbon offsets. Look, there are three tenets to um, the three R's. The first one is reduce. So Mr. Mr. Trudeau was on stage yesterday, um, you know, lecturing us again about the virtues of climate change. And on the other hand, he is not abiding by the first tenet. Look, uh, Stephen Harper... Ran a campaign in 2015, a campaign in 2011 with one plane. This is as Kardashian as it gets. You've got a plane for your <laughs> luggage. How does that? How is that even acceptable? Um, so I think this, like, like, um, like Robin said, this really, this really fits the narrative of Trudeau's brand, as far as I see it. Um, he says he's, he's a hypocrite. He does. Uh, it's more of a do as I say, not as I do. The rules don't apply to him, and uh, and he has a. Uh, a Kardashian plane for his
0: luggage, Richard. I mean, this. Uh, I think the, the, the party's buying offsets for. Uh, I think it's a, a Windsor landfill yes. uh, project. But I guess the the point still remains. If like, is that okay? Is it okay if you can do whatever you use as many planes as you want as long as you're buying carbon offsets? Is that the right message?
8: Well, I mean, I, the reality is I, I, I really have trouble with both of what both my sort of friends on the panel are here saying. We're talking about a very serious issue here, climate change, and we're debating whether or not you need one or two planes. And it's, the, the bottom line is they offset their emissions, number one, number two. Mr. Trudeau is not only the Prime Minister and, has sort of, and therefore probably, you know, runs a different style of campaign than some of the other parties, and most notably the New Democrats. I he see. also has larger campaign uh, events regularly. Mr. Shear went into Brampton the other day. Uh, and and didn't pull a hundred people. Mr. Uh, Trudeau is regularly doing events with thousands of people at them. So there are different Justin requirements for Trudeau was the that. third but he's place. But and, 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 and 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 you're not and,
0: flying the people in. I mean, you're... you're no, b- but he's flying the the, uh,
8: the, the the people in to advance those things. You guys know how campaigns work. Yeah, yeah. He's and flying in the, 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 the backdrops and the podiums and all the things that they use to make those events look the way they do on television for the rest of us to look. All right. So, I, I mean, I, I, I think you know, the campaign needs to do what the campaign needs to do. you got to offset your behaviour and your climate impact. That is what Mr. Trudeau said All he was right. going quick, to do. That quick, is what he did.
0: Quick final word to you, Samar, and then and, uh, Robin.
7: Carbon offsets are a scheme so that the wealthy can assuage their guilt about using carbon emissions. And that's exactly what Justin Trudeau is no, doing. Come
1: on. Look, carbon offsets have a place uh, at certain moments in time. It's not to replace 40-odd days of traveling around the country when it's entirely unnecessary, and you can do it by other means. And in uh, 2015, he was the third-place candidate, and his campaign started off with not thousands
0: of people, but they were still using two planes. All right. Uh, listen, thank you, all three of you, for your time tonight. Appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk again. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Differing views today from party leaders on the issue of medical assistance in dying. It figured prominently in the leaders' debate last night after a Quebec judge last month struck down parts of federal and provincial laws that restrict access to individuals who are at end of life or where a natural death is reasonably foreseeable. So the Liberals and NDP say they wouldn't appeal the ruling. The Conservatives take a different approach.
5: Well, I think obviously when it comes to an issue that is so important, so delicate, so difficult for so many families, uh, the government needs to make sure we're getting the balance right. The balance between protecting the most vulnerable and making sure people's rights and choices are respected. Uh, That's why we've moved forward on responsible legislation three years ago, but we recognize that we need to take more steps uh, to move forward as a society. Uh, We recognize that court cases would come in, that uh, people would be uh, evolving as a society, and that's what we've responded to. We will move forward in a responsible way with legislation that responds to that.
2: Well, when this bill was before Parliament, uh, I voted against the current government's uh, legislation because I did not believe that it had enough safeguards in it. Uh, and now with this ruling, I think it's uh, best that we appeal it to the Supreme Court so we can get certainty around uh, which, uh, for the framework within which a Parliament can legislate.
6: People should have the ability to make a very difficult choice but a very important choice and to die with dignity is an important choice that people should be able to make and there needs to be criteria that reflect the importance of this decision. Uh, Given that court decision there is certainly a lot of concerns around the restrictions and the limitations on access to this decision and I want to ensure that people are able to uh, make that choice Uh, but there's protections in place for the vulnerable but absolutely I think that given that court decision and given a lot of concerns I've heard we we definitely need to look at limited or removing some of the restrictions
0: dr chantal perot is a family physician psychotherapist and a member of the board of dying with dignity she joins me from toronto Uh, dr perot thanks for your time today i appreciate it my pleasure um look i'll get in a moment to what the politicians are saying today about the court ruling on medically assisted death and and how they react to it but can you start by telling me why you think the judge in quebec got it right what's wrong with the laws on medically assisted death as they are currently written
4: well, I think there are a lot of patients who are deemed not eligible for an assisted death because their deaths aren't deemed to be reasonably foreseeable. And so there's a lot of suffering that goes on for a lot of patients. And the Quebec decision in changing that will make a huge difference to a lot of my patients.
0: What's been the effect, if you can tell me a little more, uh, uh, of the law? those uh, Who's been excluded from applying uh, for the procedure? And, and what has that meant for them in terms of the, uh, some of the suffering you say a lot of them have been meant to, un- to endure?
4: Well, patients who are on a clear trajectory towards death where their diagnosis, their illness, their conditions is ultimately going to result in their death. And they're currently suffering in a lot of either pain physically or psychologically and emotionally and could expect to continue to suffer for quite a number of years. So there's been varying interpretations of the legislation in terms of reasonably foreseeable, with some physicians looking at it being closer to an imminent death as is required in Quebec, as I understand it, Mm -hmm. to others who, with the AB decision in Ontario, have expanded their finding of reasonably foreseeable to a number of years. So it's been an unequal and unfair distribution of that across the country. And for these patients who could last for quite a number of years, their suffering is very intolerable for a long period of time.
0: So b- both the Liberals and the NDP today are, are saying the ruling shouldn't be appealed, that, that they would change the law to expand access and satisfy the Quebec court ruling. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's not clear exactly how. but So maybe you can help us out. What needs to be done to address the concerns of, of dying with dignity and others?
4: Well, I, I think it, the... The ruling needs to be looked at, again, from the point of view of the patient's perspective and the patient's suffering. If a patient is on a clear trajectory towards death and their condition is going to cause their death, then their death can be seen as reasonably foreseeable, and we don't need to have that criterion in the legislation. I think part of it is up to, is being able to trust made assessors and providers to make that cl- clinical determination. And it is, it is a clinical determination. is going to be made on a case-by-case basis. And removing the criterion from the legislation will make it more fair and more equitable for patients across the country and will make it a bit easier for the clinicians to find that the patients are eligible to receive an assisted death when they are suffering.
0: The Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, is is saying today that, look, uh, he would appeal the ruling so that the Supreme Court of Canada could provide certainty to politicians and and lawmakers on how to proceed to make sure that um, they get the changes right but still protect vulnerable Canadians. Uh, How do you feel about that position?
4: I disagree. I think that the, the vulnerability of the patients has to be protected by the clinicians who are assessing them and there are safeguards in the legislation which would still stand and I think safeguards that physicians would put into their own practices which would help to protect the vulnerable patients while not discriminating against the patients who are suffering and should be found eligible.
0: Okay um, so I, I guess how do you see next steps here in terms of um a a certain amount of urgency to this i mean we're there are certain deadlines hanging over all of this on how to proceed legally Mm -hmm. and so on and and we are in the midst of an election campaign so what's your Mm -hmm. message to the political leaders
4: change the law and change it soon
0: That's simple Mm -hmm. all right dr perot thanks so much for your time today i do appreciate it thank you Well, the clock is ticking to a Monday deadline for the federal government. It has until then to decide whether it will appeal a ruling from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal to compensate as many as 50,000 First Nations children who suffered harm uh, in the on-reserve child welfare system since 2006. The tribunal ordered the government to pay the maximum $40,000 to each child taken from their homes and communities. It also ordered compensation for parents and grandparents of the children. That could result in billions of dollars in payments. In a moment I'll speak with a leading advocate for First Nations children, but first, here's how the Liberal and Conservative
5: leaders answered questions today on the ruling and how they would proceed. I will refer to the quote to the uh, Chief of the Assembly of First Nations who pointed out that no government in the history of this con- gov- country has done more uh, for reconciliation, for supporting Indigenous peoples than our government. But I recognize there's much more to do, and that's what we're focused on doing, and that's the choice facing Indigenous peoples and all Canadians. Do we go back to the failed Harper approach, or do we continue to move forward in a responsible uh, partnership way?
2: Uh, this is uh, uh, a, f- a far reaching. Uh, decision that has uh, major impacts on uh, multiple levels of government and and many different departments within government. And uh, for that reason, I I felt like it was appropriate, that it would be appropriate to have judicial review of this decision.
0: Well, let's follow up on those statements from the Liberal and Conservative leaders today about the ruling from the Human Rights Tribunal and the Monday deadline fast approaching. I should also point out that both the leaders of the Green Party and the NDP have said they would pay the compensation and not appeal this ruling. Cindy Blackstock is the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, and she's with me now to talk about this issue and where the politicians are and our political leaders are in this. So let's start with Andrew Scheer. What's your response to his statement today that says, look, there's, uh, this involves all kinds of government departments that are involved in this and we need to, we need to appeal this. Uh, it needs to be reviewed uh, judicially to figure out what we do next.
3: I don't know why he's saying that there's all kinds of government departments involved in this. Really, there's one government department involved in it, and it's Indigenous Affairs. It's the same department that has been involved with the separation of First Nations children from their families in residential schools, the Sixty Scoop, and now today, in this last decision, they've been found willfully and recklessly separating children from their families due to their discrimination the real eye of these leaders should be on reforming that department, not on reviewing this decision. Yeah, you've talked about
0: this before, that the initial reaction w- when this ruling came out from from the government was to say, look, um, you know, yeah, the, the child welfare services for First Nations uh, children uh, needs to be fixed. Uh, you make the point that it's it's the department that needs to be fixed.
3: It's, that's what the tribunal is saying and uh, they originally put their this decision on compensation fol- flows from an original 2016 decision where the found the discrimination happening and ordered Canada to fix it. You know, people may not be aware, there's been 10 orders issued Mm -hmm. against the Canadian government since that time because of their failure to comply. Um, I don't understand why in 2019 it takes court orders, repeated court orders to get the government of Canada to give justice finally to version So what what do you think
0: the role? There's there's as many as 50,000 children perhaps involved in this and and family members as well. It could be billions of dollars. Do you think that's it? Do you think you, you see a price tag of billions of dollars go, wait a minute, we need to take a closer look at this or find a way to delay it or whatever.
3: You know, the tribunal actually makes that point. They say repeatedly Canada failed to act on the solutions and put financial interests and his own interests ahead of the interests of children. So that is actually, if that's the case, that's endemic to the actual problem of what the Tribunal calls the old mindset that contributes to this discrimination. What do you want
0: to hear from the Liberal leader, uh, Justin Trudeau? I want to he's hear... He's not giving a straight answer about whether they would appeal this or not, they're going to continue to work with Indigenous groups. And look at it um, but the decision you know the deadline's coming Monday.
3: Yeah deadline's coming Monday and interestingly enough the tribunal ordered uh, the federal government to appoint someone to talk to us so that we could submit a process for that compensation yeah, by on the December 10th. isn't it? Yeah you're, you're supposed and to... we've, we haven't even given, been given the name of that person so this working with Indigenous people is not happening so I'd like to see the Prime Minister say we're not going to appeal we're going to fully comply and we're going to name someone so that the Assembly of First Nations and the caring system. I have someone to talk to about implementing this decision. Some
0: people watching this. What about the argument that, you know, there's billions of dollars at stake here. We, yeah. It's almost like the argument is we want to make sure we have to pay it. So we, <laughs> we, we want to have this reviewed in case someone says we don't have to pay it or, or we get a different ruling from somewhere. There is an argument of people who say, it's a lot of money. Let's make sure that we have to do it, essentially.
3: Right. Well, you know, that the the door has closed on that argument. The Canadian government was found to be racially discriminating against these kids in 2013, did not appeal that judgment, which means they accepted that they mm-hmm. were doing that. So now it comes to the, the stage the where we... compensation part. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, how much do you compensate for, in many, too far too many cases, the deaths of children. And in thousands of cases... the the unnecessary separations of children from their families due to Canada's discrimination. When you think about it as being one of those parents, would $40,000 really seem like a lot to you? But even worse, when you're given that and then the government says we need to appeal it to see if we actually owe it, there's something really wrong about that. To
0: to be clear, what what exactly is the Human Rights Tribunal saying happened
3: here? Right. So a lot of people may not know that the federal government funds all public services on reserve and the provinces and territories for everyone else. Dating back 112 years, the federal government has provided less funding for First Nations people across all kinds of services. The tribunal said that Canada provides significantly less funding for child welfare services, particularly services to keep families together. And that was contributing to the dramatic over-representation of First Nations kids in care. And that was discriminatory. They also said Canada was not providing equitable access to other services, sometimes life and death services for little kids, health care. And that was discriminatory too, and both needed to stop.
0: So if Monday comes and uh, the answer from... Uh of the government is that uh, we're going to appeal this. What will you think?
3: Well, then I think, uh, you know, I'm hoping voters take that into account when they go to the polls. We're really at a moral turning point here. Do we as a country accept that racial discrimination against children should be used as a fiscal restraint measure? And what measure does it send to children when they're getting less public services than everyone else, and yet they see the government making choices to renovate parliament for 15 years? Mm -hmm. That's more important than little kids having a childhood. I don't think most Canadians would agree with that.
0: Cindy Blackstock, uh, thanks for your time. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me. 338
0: canadacom is a model of electoral projections based on opinion polls, electoral history of Canadian provinces, and demographic data. The website is operated by Philippe J. Fournier, who, along with being a political numerical junkie, happens to be an astronomy and physics professor as well at Cégep de Saint-Laurent in Montreal, and he is with me now. Uh, good to see you, Professor. Thanks for being here.
9: <laughs> good morning, Mr. Van
0: First off, explain how you create your projections. Let's start there.
9: Well, uh, it's a complex uh, system, but basically, if I want to break it down here, we use opinion polls, we use demographic data from the Canadian census, and also I I look at the history of all the districts, electoral districts in the country. I did the same thing in Ontario and Quebec and Alberta last spring to uh, try to modelize uh, the the, the movement in uh, public opinion. And so far, well, it's not a perfect system, but it has called 91 percent of uh, of district winners in those three elections, and so I'm applying this uh, I'm applying this uh, this time to the federal election. It's much more complex. I can tell you that there there are a lot of numbers, a lot of polls. But uh, so far, I think uh, I'm, I'm keeping up. Okay, um,
0: let's let's start with what your latest projections tell us uh, about the overall race. When you put all the numbers together and you analyze it, what are you seeing?
9: Well, I I would stress that it's really close right now, and any scenario, uh, whether a conservative majority, conservative minority, liberal minority, liberal majority, they're all on the table right now because the numbers are so close. Uh, Generally, we have the conservatives ahead in the popular vote uh, projection uh, by maybe a point or two, so it's very close. It's within the margin of error of most polls. However, when we look at the regional distribution, we look at the breakdown of the regional numbers, we see that the Liberals do enjoy a small advantage because they uh, they are leading in the most populous provinces, whereas the Conservatives, well, they're, uh, they're uh, terribly ahead by uh, about 40 to 50 points in Alberta, and so it skews the national numbers.
0: Right. So when you put it all together, you look at it because it's important to understand the difference between popular vote and seat projections, right? Because, uh, you know, just because you have more popular vote in an election in this country doesn't mean you end up with the most seats. When you when you do that, what, what would your models tell you about the likelihood of Conservatives or Liberals winning the most seats?
9: Well, right now, I would say the Liberals are two-to-one favourites, uh, which is not a, at all a very comfortable lead for the Liberals. But right now, uh, two out of every three simulations gives at least a plurality of seats to the Liberals. Uh, the Liberals are projected to win over 40 seats and over 70 seats just in Quebec and Ontario, respectively, and uh, it would be enough to win a plurality. Now the question remains, can the Conservatives make ground in Ontario? Uh, There are also uh, scenarios that show that we could be very uh, late on election night because it could come down to B.C. Uh, We could wait until the the, the wee hours of uh, Eastern time to see the results in B.C. to know who wins the election uh but right now i would say the average is around 160 seats for the liberals so about 10, 10 seats short of a majority mm-hmm. maybe 140 uh seats for the conservatives which would be 40 more seats than 2015. it would be a significant uh, gain from the conservatives but still but a minority yeah. but but still yeah we're still in minority territory i would say right now
0: all right the, the focus in the past 24 hours has been on the province of quebec with the big leaders debate last night on tv all of the leaders uh, hoping to build momentum for those key battles in the province of Quebec. And it's a, it's a really interesting province always to watch, but in this election yeah. particularly because of all these different combinations of possible battles. Uh, what does your analysis reveal about the support for the parties in Quebec right now?
9: Well, it's very, it's very strange because I wrote about this in Macleans. The Quebec electorate has been very volatile in the last 10 years. We had three provincial elections in a row that produced three different governments. Three different parties won the election. And if we look at the federal scene, well, in 2008, the Bloc Québécois won 49 seats in Quebec. Four, uh, three years later, 2011, we had the orange wave of Jack Layton winning 59 of the uh, province's 75 seats. And then four years later, Justin Trudeau won 40 seats. And though the Quebec electorate swings one way or the other, so it's not a good idea for, uh, for any politician of any stripe to take the Quebec electorate for, uh, for granted. Uh, right now, we still have the Liberals favored in Quebec. But uh, we have seen some movement uh, that shows that the Bloc Québécois is inching up uh, and taking the ground from the Conservatives, and that could make a huge difference in the rural parts of Quebec.
0: Okay, so uh, we've seen some polling as well that suggests that uh, francophone support for the Liberals may be dropping somewhat. What do you what do you think is happening on the on the ground? Where, what's what's causing the
9: shift? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I can pinpoint it to a single thing, but uh, of course. Uh, In Quebec, we have a very good, none-of-the-above option in the Bloc Québécois, and I'm sure other provinces would love to have such an option, because none of the federal leaders right now uh, are creating uh, a movement like Jack Layton did in 2011, and to some degree, Justin Trudeau four years ago. So, uh, you know, Quebec voters have to feel inspired by their leaders, and right now, we don't feel that, and we don't see it in numbers. The liberals are basically at the same level they were four years ago. Uh, so it's, it's a good result for, for you know, for the Liberals. But uh, to really make gains, especially taking advantage of the fact that the NDP has lost maybe three-fifths of its support in the last four years in Quebec— uh, so so there's a huge potential and you we could say if I can add uh, the conservatives were polling much higher in Quebec in the spring and in the summer and it seems like since the be- uh, the campaign began the conservatives have lost ground in Quebec.
0: Right and that's bit, when you talk about conservatives they need to build obviously every party wants to win more seats but in particular the liberals in Quebec because they are their part of their strategy is the expectation that they will lose seats in other parts of Canada and they're hoping to win more seats in the province of Quebec. But right now, you're suggesting that's not a guarantee.
9: Right now, well, we're two, week, two and a half weeks out from the vote, and the numbers suggest that, no, the Conservatives are trending down in Quebec, which is, again, a lost opportunity, I believe, for Andrew Scheer because he had very interesting numbers. Uh, no federal uh, Conservative party has had 25% of the Quebec vote since Brian Moroni. And so it's been a long time. Uh, many of our the voters uh, this time around were not alive back then. Uh, and so, right now, the average for the Conservatives is around 20 percent. They should do very well in Quebec City and then in the suburbs of Quebec City, but uh, they're not pulling at all in, in Montreal and in the regions of Quebec right now, well, they're trading the Bloc Quebecois. So, uh, slim pickings for the Conservatives, it looks, uh, it looks to be this time around. I would add that, that uh, the, the path to a majority for Andrew Scheer goes through Quebec. And so, right now, even if the Conservatives do have a chance to win the most seats, Uh, A majority for for Andrew Scheer looks really far-fetched because of those Quebec numbers. Okay.
0: Did you see anything in the debate last night that makes you believe that those numbers could shift to or away from uh, one or more of the parties based on the debate performance?
9: Well, that's a good question. So I I watched the debate last night and uh, tried to have, uh, you know, uh, the eye of uh, the the, uh, average Quebec voter... And, of course, Andrew Scheer had the, I don't want to say the handicap, but, of course, it, it was hard for him to, to speak, to be at ease, as much at ease as the others. Uh, Jack meetsing Singh was really good in French, so that was surprising. Uh, but, obviously, François Blanchet and Justin Trudeau had the advantage of the language. Uh, it, it, it was a really hard night for Andrew Scheer. And so, if he wanted to convince those uh, rural Quebecers to vote for him instead of the bloc, I think the last night's debate did not help.
0: Okay, you have also been doing a closer analysis uh, of the rural-urban divide and what that means for the parties. I mean, we talk a lot in this country and and certainly in this election campaign about polarization in the east and west. You know, Alberta and Saskatchewan and uh, how how they view the country differently and the way they're treated differently than Central Canada and Atlantic Canada. But you've been doing some analysis here of of something else and and we talk somewhat about it. The rural-urban divide, we should be more worried about that. What, what does your analysis show you?
9: Well, it's a, it was very interesting. So I look at the map, and of course, we, we all know that liberals do better in the cities, but I wanted to have a better grasp. I wanted to have numbers to support that our, the argument, and the numbers were absolutely amazing. Uh, So I broke down all 338 districts in Canada by population density. So it's not a perfect measure of uh, of, uh, the urbanity level of uh, of a district, but it's still a pretty good index. So uh, when you look at uh, population density, it goes from... 17,000 people per square kilometer in downtown toronto to a fraction of a person per square kilometer in the the territories and uh, when we break it down uh, through that measure we see that among the 60 densest uh district the conservatives have exactly one and it's in the suburbs of quebec city and so uh in the voting intentions the liberals lead the conservatives by 26 points in the most dense uh, districts in this country. When we look at the other end of the spectrum, when we look at the more rural parts of the country—so, of course, that would include Alberta, but also Saskatchewan, Ontario, and parts of Quebec as Uh, well—when we look at the more rural areas, uh, the Conservatives dominate and have a 16-point lead over the Liberals. So, yes, there is an East-West divide that is uh, evident—that is obvious in Canada. But this rural and urban uh, divide, I think, is growing starker. And it's going to be uh, quite a challenge for uh, future politicians to deal with this, because obviously the interest and the, uh, the, uh, the, of people living in Montreal and Toronto and Vancouver are not the same as those living in, in Lethbridge or in Saskatchewan. And so uh, this is going to be a real challenge for uh, politicians. All right. Lots
0: to watch for. Uh, and thank you for the analysis, Philip J. Fournier. Uh, hope we get to talk again. It's uh, good to talk to you. Take care. Well, 2,146 candidates are running for election in 338 ridings across the country in this campaign. 125 of them list themselves as independents or having no affiliation. A couple, of course, are big-name candidates, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott, two former Liberal cabinet ministers. But many of them have little or no public profile and, frankly, little or no chance of winning. But that doesn't stop them from stepping forward and offering up important ideas in an election campaign. Why do it? Let's find out with my next guest. He's Chris Jones. He's an independent candidate in the riding of Ottawa Centre. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Uh, Let's start, if I can, with the 30-second CV, if I can put it that way. Who are you? Right.
10: Um, Well, I'm a long-time resident of Ottawa. Uh, Been here since 1982. Uh, Been working in government affairs as an advisor on Parliament Hill Um, and more recently working with the uh, Westboro Region Food Bank, helping feed the food insecure in this area. Okay. But I have a doctorate as well, and so quite an interest in political economy.
0: Why? Uh, what's your reason for running? What, what's, yeah. what's prompted you to do something that you, you must have known before you, you did it was a bit of a Herculean undertaking? Sure. Um, I think mainly
10: because I feel very strongly and passionately about the issues that I'm running on. I feel they've been neglected by the mainstream parties, and that these kinds of things are crucial to the challenges that Canada faces at this point in our lives. What,
0: what are they? I mean, there's, there's three things, having read through your material, yeah. I know there's kind of three things that you think we need to address as Canadians, and let's yeah. walk through them. Well,
10: basically, my concern is that at this point in time, Canada's suffering multiple crises in a number of areas. Uh, financial issues, uh, public health issues, a climate crisis and therefore I wanted to address what I thought were the root causes of those and I believe that they include things such as the fact that we have lobbyists who are very active in shaping the public policy debate in Ottawa, not necessarily in the public interest. That we lack full cost accounting, uh, which I can explain in a minute, and finally that, aside from election periods and when they're occasionally enlisted in a focus group, that citizens don't actually play a big part in the life of our democracy. So, in effect, I'm calling for citizens assemblies. So, those are my three
0: issues. Okay, let's let's let, let me look at. The, this is a city that. You know, is very familiar with lobby- lobbying, as you know, uh, and uh, but a lot of people will say, look, there's there's nothing wrong with lobbying. It's part of it's part of the, the the exchange of ideas and concerns that are brought to to legislators all the time. So, what's wrong with with for-profit lobbying? By businesses and, and other corporate interests?
10: Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think it's quite as benign as you portray it, Peter. We have 5,500 lobbyists here in Ottawa in total. Um, in the United States, incidentally, there are about 11,000, so they're 10 times our population, but we have 50% of their numbers. My view is that over time, as the electorate has become more apathetic and disenchanted, that the lobbyists have stepped in to shape the public debate in that vacuum of citizen disengagement. We now have more and more lobbyists in between elections, altering the discussion, changing and framing the debate in many ways that I think are detrimental to the public interest. They're not not all badly intentioned, but their natural objective is to pursue their own company's interests,
0: and so how does that how does that damage? The, the well, the legislative process sure. or the social policy process. Sure. So um, basically, I think what's happened is that the public
10: interest has been compromised in many ways. That different bills that would be designed to uh, assist different groups in society may run counter to the short-term commercial objectives of some of those companies. And those things are then, over time, in subtle ways, scaled back and attenuated. And so that, that's my concern with
0: that. Having been inside the system to a certain extent. I've I've seen that. Okay. Tell me about uh, the citizen assembly. This is not a new idea. Other, others have talked about the need for citizen assembly. Uh, it's always been a big deal, I think, for the Green Party. and They've pushed sure. that idea. Sure. Um, what would it look like? What, yeah, what does so that kind my, of democratic my, reform look like I've done a little bit like of
10: uh, research into this. I think we need... Uh, s- groups of 30 citizens in each one of our federal ridings, so 338 of them, and I think they should be constituted initially in parallel to the role of the MP. And uh, In other words, they should sit regularly, meet with each other, discuss, debate, and deliberate with each other, and that twice a month, um, and by the way, these people would be chosen without any pre-screening, drawn by lot, ordinary Canadians, basically, and that they would then meet with the MP at least twice a month to exchange ideas, opinions, views and recommendations
0: and I well, think what, that what do you think doesn't I guess you know some MPs will say look I meet with constituents all the time I have an open door riding office they can walk in and tell me their concerns what's different yeah so what I think is different is that
10: um, given what I talked about earlier the the sort of unrelenting approach of lobbyists who are constantly coming in the door to meet with politicians and and their advisors um, and they're very articulate they're well healed they're well positioned the average citizen voice has been lost to a certain extent in our politics now. And I think that the that if citizens met and talked amongst each other, Peter, and they were able to discuss the issues of the day, for instance, let's say last winter when the SNC-Lavalin debate was raging, had we had a group of ordinary citizens meeting in each federal riding, as those MPs went back to their ridings at the end of a session, at the end of a week, I think the, the, the view about what should be done about that issue would have been quite different. But instead we had heavy-handed caucus discipline, we had whip voting. We saw that issue come to come to nowhere, basically. And so I, I believe that citizens have a role to play more than just being convened as part of a focus group and more than just being part of an all candidates debate once every right. four years.
0: You also want businesses to pay uh, social and environmental yeah, now this, costs that I mean, solve some of the problem. Would that solve some of the problems? Sure. You're
10: talking about? So look, I think that is the single most important of the three that I'm talking about. We lack full cost accounting in North America, we lack it all over the world. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, the goal of most companies understandably, is to increase their profit margin. So what they try to do is socialize most of the costs that they don't want to pay, environmental, social, financial costs, to be pushed off their books Onto the books of the general public, future generations, the natural environment, and I think the reason we have so much carbon in the atmosphere, plastic in the oceans, erosion in soil is because of
0: this. So you have a, you have a past in party politics. I yes, mean, you, know, you touched on that. Uh, so why run as an independent? What what did you ever have you offered to be? Have you tried for a party nomination? For I instance?
10: didn't in this election. No, I felt. But have you in the past? Um, no, okay. no. I, I had three boys, and I felt that I didn't have the time to devote to the kind of all-consuming life But when you look at these other mainstream parties you you, you
0: see in those parties no no real place for these ideas I, I see that these
10: parties are too timid they are unwilling to embrace this kind of audacious change that would be, that would really rock the system and that would move things fundamentally in the direction of ordinary citizens. And if we had full-cost accounting, you would be changing the nature of the debate about which projects get the green light, um, how do we account for externalities, all these kinds of issues that presently are swept under the rug. What, do you, what kind of reception do you get at the doorstep? Uh, Well, funnily enough, increasingly, I, I think with the younger generation, they are concerned about this. They see this. They see the uncounted costs of single occupant vehicle car use or the fact that many people are eating low nutritional quality food. They can see the side effects of this. And so I'm getting actually a fairly favorable response. Funnily enough, from the guys that are more pro-business, their big concern around is the the lobbying one. They feel that some businesses, for instance, Amazon has come to Canada recently. They sought and obtained some assistance to relocate. Well some people felt that was an illustration of lobbying uh, that worked to the detriment of Canadian businesses. Do you see what I'm saying? Right, right. Okay. Uh, What are
0: your expectations?
10: My expectations, I'm doing, I'm engaged in missionary work here. I'm attempting to push a set of ideas that I feel strongly about but the, the mainstream political classes have yet to, to, to take up and embrace. Um, although I'm finding on the doorstep, they're increasingly resonant and that people are actually interested in these ideas and that they realize that we are in, uh, approaching a time where we're going to need to reach outside of the conventional toolbox and look for some other ideas at this point. And that's what I'm trying to offer them. Right.
0: Uh, unless you're a well-known name. Let's finish on this. Uh, you know, Jody Wilson, Jane. Janefield. Yeah. It's hard to get a machine behind you Correct. if you're an independent. Uh, I'm sure you've found that. Um, Is there something we, we would do to change the system, to give independents a greater voice in the process? Doesn't mean more people vote for them necessarily, but there's a, I guess amplifies what ideas that are coming from people that don't have a big machine behind them. Yeah. Or, or well, the flip think, side of that is, I guess, uh, if, if you're not, if, if your ideas aren't resonating in mainstream parties, maybe your ideas are no good. That's what some people will say. Well, um, to take up your first question, I think that
10: had I been given an opportunity, at the first all candidates debate in the Glebe a couple of days ago Which to is speak a neighborhood here in Ottawa, to yeah. speak as opposed to just the five parties that are contesting the election here, I think that would have helped. Um, but I think in a broader sense, I think we need to have more dialogue and discussion We need to and not just to channel it through the parties who after all have a vested interest in constraining the terms of the debate to keep it on to their kind of turf. So um, I, I believe that people like myself have a valuable role to play. Um, we're bringing up other ideas and challenging the, the status quo. All right. Chris Jones, good to talk to you.
0: Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Peter. That is all for another edition of Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition. I'm Peter Van Dusen, thanks for watching. Stay tuned, continuing coverage of Vote 2019 right here on CPAC.